This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Tisa Zito, the filmmaker behind Forevermore, The Angelo Project. Writer Liza Porter tells about her new collection of poems, Keep the Singing, which is dedicated to her late sister, Edie. And award-winning and best-selling author Luis Alberto Urea shares the inspiration behind his novel, The House of Broken Angels. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. My guest, Tisa Zito, is a digital film producer at Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. Her latest film is a documentary about the fascinating career of Angelo Moore. He's most famous as the frontman, saxophonist, and theremin player for the eclectic band Fishbone. Moore has been creating music and art at a breakneck speed since the early 1980s. Zito and her camera captured him in action for Forevermore, The Angelo Project, which is a featured selection in the 17th annual Tucson Music and Film Festival. She says that three and a half years ago, at a screening for the Fishbone documentary Everyday Sunshine, she met Angelo Moore and immediately felt he needed a movie made about him. Angelo is the most approachable person I think I've ever met. He is really down to earth, really sweet. He's got kind of like a mystical presence. I feel like he jingles when he walks, but I think maybe that's just all in my head. He is smiley and he makes eye contact and he he really listens to you. Like he actually seems like he's interested in what you're saying, which is not the case for many people who are well-known or or really just people in general. He was open to the idea of being filmed. Racism is even a part of the Webster's Dictionary. Would you believe it? Before a child is socially aware to comprehend the evils and goods, yings and yangs of the universe, world or society, it stands in the middle of a road of life, knowing no left or right or so-called good, bad or color. Don't be brainwashed by these words of racial dissension, which have escalated into the monster we all call racism. What story about Angelo did you feel was most important to convey in your film? I wanted people to know who he was, who don't know who he is, because I just feel like this guy put so much into his artwork. And I mean, there's so many artists out there that are just so amazing that don't get any kind of credit or or limelight. You know, there's a segment in the film where I show he does all these home videos and home movies, which he showed me the day that I met him, by the way. (laughs) He's very open and was sharing things. And I just thought, all of this needs to be seen because this guy is just constantly creating. He literally, like, he doesn't sleep often. And when he does, he just sort of, like, collapses and wakes up again. I wanted everybody to see the energy that he puts into his work. 
There's actually a great quote in the film from a producer musician that he is working with currently, not a member of Fishbone. And it, it mm-hmm. describes his life as a series of explosions and naps. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly what it's like, though, because when I went to film him, you know, I drove to L.A. in my little car. I packed it up and I did all this stuff by myself. I really didn't have help until the end when I was running out of energy. I stayed with him for like a week. You know, I stayed at a hotel, but I was literally with him like 12 hours a day. And I just I was out of steam, you know, and he's like, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to go. And I was like we got to sleep at some point, too. Like, <laughs> i got to recharge. Yeah, what's his diet like? I'm curious. You know, Michelle, who was in the film, Michelle Harper, his life partner, does a good job of kind of putting food in front of him to make sure that he, that he <laughs> consumes. And I understand what that's like because, honestly, I'm like that, too, when I'm totally, like, hyper-focused on something. I completely get swallowed up in my work, and I kind of forget to eat as well. But one of the first things I told Angelo was you got to take your vitamins. And what I meant was you have to take care of yourself because I could see the energy he was putting out and I could see, you know, it's hard being a musician on the road. I mean, you know, he's not in his teens anymore. Well, what is Angelo's age? uh, Mid fifties. But when he smiles, he's like 10 years old. Oh my God. And when he talks sometimes, he's He's like a little kid. He really is. I mean, everybody says that about him. Well, let's talk about his family. You interviewed his mother, and she's elegant and beautiful and warm and obviously very proud of Angelo. What do you think that you learned about Angelo from talking to his mom? I learned that he came from a fairly strict um, household and that some of his you know, artistic talents and traits maybe weren't recognized right away as as that. I mean, they kind of saw him as misbehaving or not really listening. Mm. But over time, I think they realized what it was. Um, His mom has a really great sense of humor. She laughed a lot during her interview. And I, I tried to keep some of that because I just felt like it was like little moments of, you know, little gems. Uh, I think she's extremely proud of Angelo because she knows how hard he's worked. She has a a library. She's like the archival librarian. I mean, their whole garage is just filled with fishbone paraphernalia and photos and things like that. And she was was very proud to, to show it to me and very, very interesting woman. I'll never forget this big blanket he got and put it over his head on the floor and crawl around said I'm a walrus and we'd have to say get up get up you know what are you doing <laughs> I thought and his dad would say that's your son he's not mine <laughs> Fishbone started with a core group of about six guys and they were extremely tight and they stayed consistent with the band for a long time but Then things happened, and the band is very disparate now, and members have come back over time. They come and go. But you talked to the bassist in the band, who has been a stalwart, and I'd like to know, much like in the case of interviewing his mother, what do you think you really learned from interviewing uh, Norwood Fisher? I learned that there is like a brotherly love that can only come from being in such a situation where there's frustration and there's like appreciation and it's it's something that probably only musicians in a band 
would understand. And so I, I learned how kind of deep that went. I mean, during the interview, he shared stories that were out of frustration. But then at the same time, he would say things that were like really, really kind and um, and loving that I don't think has been captured uh, well enough. But at the same time, I wanted to show like it is hard to work with Angelo because he is a very specific character who he can get really focused. And um, I, I have tons of stories like just about even trying to to film him that were, uh, you know, a bit maddening because you have a schedule and Angelo doesn't really have a schedule. What I see of his process, sometimes I'm completely in awe of it. More times than not, he's able to unpack his thoughts into words, into poetry, into stories, into songs. Tisa, do you think you came away with some lessons about filmmaking from Forevermore, The Angelo Project? Yes, absolutely. Don't try to make a movie by yourself. Um, (laughs) That is a huge mistake. You know, I've made so many short films and little ditties on my own, and I thought, oh, I can do this. Um, I can direct, produce, shoot, edit, and fundraise and all that. And... um, not only does the product suffer because in the end you having help and and collaborating always makes something better um because you have fresh energy coming in so that's my one my one takeaway is like take one thing and do that and make it good don't try to do everything so tisa at this point you know what are you looking forward to with this film i'm looking forward to finishing the festival run it's been a successful one we're going to have a huge event November 4th here in St. George, Utah at the Doc Utah Film Festival, and it's going to be a red carpet event. Angelo's going to come and perform. We'll show the film. There'll be a Q&A, and there'll be some hors d'oeuvres. You know, dress to impress, and you can get tickets at docutah.com. You know, my imagination runs wild when I think what it would take to dress to impress Angelo more. Yeah, I know. I wonder what he's going to wear. I'm like, what do you got? <laughs> you know, because he's always got something. My thanks to Tisa Zito, the filmmaker behind Forevermore, The Angelo Project. It's part of the 17th Annual Tucson Film and Music Festival. You can find all of the festival's offerings online. There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. When asked to describe herself, Tucsonan Liza Porter said a poet, an essayist, a grandmother, a mother, and a retired person. Her collection of poems called Keep the Singing was written in tribute to her older sister, Edie. The book serves as a touching memorial to the complexity of love between sisters. I did it over a number of years. A lot of the poems were written like right after she died, and it was the way that I could come to terms with it. And she was also a writer and a poet. She died kind of suddenly only after a long illness, if that makes any sense. I mean, we were expecting her to get better. And um, writing is the way that I understand my life, really. Most of my writing has been about either the abuse or the rape or whatever, or grieving over things. 
So that's what I did. So in order to sort of get closer to your feelings, perhaps, writing was Uh an important mechanism for that? Yeah. I didn't know what else to do, really. And I wanted to honor her as well. And I don't think that I thought about it this way, but it was like just inside me. It made sense to write poetry because she was the one who turned me on to poetry way back in the day. She would mail me poems cut out of the New Yorker. I mean, I was not an educated person, you know, and she was learning all about that and she shared it with me and I'll always be grateful for that. Tell us more about her and about the nature of your relationship as sisters. Well, you know, we fought a lot (laughs) when we were kids, when we were teenagers especially. Um, Because of the nature of our family, she sort of had been given the role of my, my caretaker, I guess you would say. She tried to talk me out of a lot of the things that I was going to do, and of course I didn't listen to her and had to make all the mistakes. And what was the age difference? Three years. She was the older sister, and she felt like she had so much more knowledge. She did, though. She was really smart and really intuitive and really passionate about whatever the topic was. I had people that she used to work with tell me that, too. Passionate is the perfect word for her. And she led a more straight and narrow life in terms of not getting too involved in, like, illegal activities like drugs and stuff. She was trying to protect me. And I didn't appreciate it at the time. Yeah. But once we were much older, we learned to, like, put aside our differences most of the time. Not always. We had this huge fight in an elevator in Washington, D.C., with our our mother was in the elevator. I mean, what a place to have a fight (laughs) (laughs) in front of your own mother. I really sort of regret that one. But it's I was the baby of the family, you know. I was the baby, and I was sort of spoiled and self-centered. It took me a long time to grow up, if I even have. Tell me something about her writing style. How do you think she might have influenced you as a poet? Or did she? She did. She influenced me more by turning me on to Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, really. I have a more of a wild way of of writing my poems. And she, she was, I would say, more thoughtful. She's a wordsmith. That's what her husband used to call her. She's a wordsmith. She had to have the exact perfect word. Yeah, we had really different voices. It's kind of astounding considering we came from the same family. Liza, what's the name of your book? Keep the Singing. It's the title of a poem in the book, the last poem I wrote. And I think it might have been when I realized, well, maybe I have enough to have a little book now, you know? Is there a poem from Keep the Singing that you'd like to share with us now? Yeah, I'd like to read this poem called The Vigil. We talk to her and read and pray and sing as candles flame all around her and one woman even dances as I lie down next to the table in the small living room where my sister waits for us to say enough goodbyes to let her pass to the other world. As the days march first, second, third, my sister's eyes sink deeper into her face 
as if retreating from this fiery place to another, calmer existence. Yes, she looks calm. Isn't that the only thing the living can know? The dead seem peaceful and calm, or maybe they are finally done with the pain. The flowers in my sister's hands as she lies on the table after the women wash her body before the men lift her into the casket on the fourth morning after her death are gone now. The flowers are gone, her hands are gone, and her fingers and the dark blue polish on her nails, the turquoise knit hat, the scarf someone wrapped around her neck to keep her warm, the hat, the scarf, the poem I wrote and placed in the casket, the note from her daughter, certain pages torn out of books, Philip Levine, Adrian Rich, Galway Canal, drawings of eagles and flaming yellow circles that look like rising suns. Liza, in my life, there have been a few times when I have attended the funerals of loved ones, and seen them lying in repose. Each time what happened was I found myself completing a conversation with them, saying things to them that I didn't know I was going to say. But standing in their presence, I would pick up on something that was unresolved between us, and I would talk to them about it. Did you have any similar experience was, was there anything that you felt like you needed to say to your sister? I told her that I would take care of our mother because it always comes to the girls, you know. <laughs> yeah. I told her I'd take care of our mother, and I promised her that I would help take care of our brother who's always had so much trouble in his life. Yeah, those would be the two things I told her. And I didn't need to tell her I'd take care of her girls, but they've become like daughters to me. And they have added so much to my life. They're in their 20s now. And you're the cool aunt. Yeah. I am the cool aunt. (laughs) (laughs) One of them used to call me the towel aunt because I would send her towels at Christmas. (laughs) The linen aunt. (laughs) (laughs) Liza, are there things in your life now that when you run across them, see them, experience them, they instantly bring Edie to mind? Oh, yes. I could name 10 Bob Dylan songs, and you don't hear them on the radio, you know? They're records we played over and over again. I mean, I wouldn't even care about Bob Dylan if it hadn't been for her. I wonder if you have another selection that you'd like to read from the book. I do. I'd, I'd like to read the, um, the title poem, Keep the Singing. She gave me thunder, the road. She gave me the poets, the poems. The words still blare from the parchment like trumpets. The ancient paper still flutters in the sun, the fog, the rain. She gave me the lips of death, sexton, clap, wolf. She gave me the headlights, a highway to follow named 61, its white line still there in the distance like hope. My heart pulled by a long Pythagorean string down roads filled with cars and girls and slamming screens. She pulled the sadness from my heart and made me scream. She gave me death and needles, neck shivers and dreams. 
She gave me poems as if they were her very own. She said, borrow, don't steal. She gave me alphabets, chords, the minor keys. She gave me rock and roll. She gave me the great song Traveler. He still rings freedom from the vinyl and the tapes. She gave me something to wait for. She gave me fate, her taste for the way an image can slap you in the face. She gave me longing, she gave me wailing, the desire to keep the wailing, keep the wailing, she said, not from my throat, but from theirs, the others, the thunder, the road, the idiot wind, from the ones who sing with hidden tongues. She gave me want and need and the ability to see, to believe. She said, don't fake it, wait for the real thing. Don't fake it, don't give in, she said. Keep the singing, she said. Keep the singing, keep the singing. I wonder if writing this book ended up being therapeutic. Did it feel necessary? Oh, boy. Um, I think it was therapeutic, and I think it helped me put her in a different position in my life. She's not sitting on my shoulder telling me the correct way to live anymore. That sounds terrible. She used to be there because no one else had been, you know. And I'm writing a memoir now, and so I'm going way back deep into stuff and finding letters and, and all kinds of stuff. That also is helping me realize that she used a lot of her energy trying to make me okay, and I never really realized that before. She didn't just give me poetry and give me Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, you know. She, like, drove hundreds of miles to try and convince me not to follow this guy up to Oregon, you know. This is a long time ago. Yeah. But once, when we both got settled into sort of mainstream lives, I guess you would say, you know, with husbands and kids, which I never thought would happen to me. I didn't even know I wanted that until I had it. The fact that she was doing it, too, made it okay for me. And that is what helped me become a writer, is the safety. The safety of having a home and knowing that she had the same thing and that we had survived it all. Liza Porter is the author of Keep the Singing. It's available for pre-order now from Finishing Line Press. Luis Alberto Urea is the critically acclaimed and best-selling author of 18 books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. He's a Pulitzer finalist and a Guggenheim Fellow, and he's won both an Edgar and an American Book Award. NPR's book critic once called Urea a literary badass. He's coming to Tucson for a live lecture and reading as part of this year's Tucson Humanities Festival. And that gave me a chance to listen to the audiobook of his 2018 novel, The House of Broken Angels. It was read by Urea himself. He tells the story of Big Angel, the patriarch of a Mexican-American family in San Diego. Big Angel is coming to terms with his impending death from cancer and the desire to try and right the wrongs he committed in the time he has left. I found out that the book was inspired by the death of Urea's eldest brother, Juan. It shares the love and the loss that the author experienced with his readers. My dad had families, <laughs> plural, uh, and I was the only one in my family, but there were siblings. 
and Juan was the eldest of those. And my father, in his playboy paranoia, wanted both the wife and the ex-wife to stay apart and my siblings and me. He he really didn't make it very easy for me to, to hang out with family. And Juan was the eldest and just refused that. He he took the mantle of being my, he was my huckleberry, or I was his. And uh, he and my father had this deal that they would learn English better by memorizing the dictionary, believe it or not. This is such a great immigrant story. They they memorized five pages a week of Merriam-Webster, and then they would have a, an English off to see who could win. And I think the dude that knew the most words got a pack of cigarettes, something like that. But Juan also was a sci-fi fiend, and so he bought dozens and dozens of paperback rack in the liquor stores kind of sci-fi books, and uh, he would then send them my way, which fomented my sci-fi madness. I felt great kinship with your main character, the patriarch, Big Angel. I felt like the book showed that this man had had so many different aspects in his life, from his professional life, uh, working for the power company and being a computer specialist, to being a, a father, to being a lover, to being hopeful. And then the flashbacks to his childhood and young life were, were so illuminating. It, it reminded me that we are all multitudes. In every instance, whether he, if he's dealing with the gringos at work or whether he's dealing with his wife's sisters, to his children, to his brothers, it's a different aspect every time. It's never quite the same big angel in any of those situations. I'm glad you said that because I think if anything, for me, it's trying to combat what I consider a sort of stereotypical picture of you know, the Mexican male, you see it in various forms all the time. And and my obsession with the point that we are all human and you've got to find a way for us to sit together and look in each other's eyes and realize there there aren't any other those people over there. They're the same as my people over here on some profound level. You know, that's why the book is funny. All of my books and I, I don't know if it's harmed their critical cachet or not, but someday somebody will notice that all the books I write are a bit tragic, but that human beings, I think one of the life forces is is this humor, is this, this joie de vivre, you know, that you can't stop. And uh, that's important. So one of my writing rules, which I had in mind for writing this book, particularly because it was really painful to me, but... You know, I always do, I spring this on my students at the beginning of every writing semester. I tell them, you know, laughter is the virus that infects us with humanity. And, I, you know, I just have this theory that if we sit with someone and share a true laugh with them, not at them, but with them, right. it's it's almost impossible to walk away from that table thinking they're less than. Hmm. And so Big Angel was a great opportunity because I had a great template in my brother, and uh, he was dying, and there was no way around it. I don't know if you're like me, but if the cell phone rings and it's somebody from home, which would be a rare call for me, you know, my response is, "Uh uh-oh, because I don't know what thing is coming. And uh, it was my niece, and she called, and she was like, hi, Tio. I was walking my daughter around the river we have running just to just to hear myself say we have a river running through the town i live in 
It's unimaginable, man. So anyway, um, yeah, how are you doing? And she said, you know, my dad wants to talk to you, which was weird. And I said, oh, put him on. It was Juan. And uh, he told me he was he had cancer and it was really bad. And and it was devastating. I, I remember sitting down out, out in the woods. I didn't know what to do. And this was a while ago when he got sick. And, uh, you know, I was all new to social media. as, And it was fairly just starting to sprout up, right? And so I said to him, Hey, carnal, have you ever heard of the Facebook? <laughs> and he said, the Facebook is eso. Because he was, you know, a tech guy, but he wasn't doing communication stuff. I said, yeah, it's the thing where all the people get to know each other and show pictures and stuff. And he said, yeah. He was like, what does this have to do with me? And I said, but I've seen people, gringos, post when their mom or dad are sick and ask for prayers. And people, strangers, pray for you. Would you like that? And he said, yes, I would. And I said, okay. You know, and I put it up. My brother is ill and he needs your prayers. And people responded. One guy drew a logo and called it Team Juan. And so I sent the logo to my brother, you know, and he liked that. I would report in. You know, you got 50 people praying for you. You got 75, 150. Ended up with, you know, 200 people praying for him that he'd never heard of. But the cool stuff was reporting to him who, among all of the people, there was a woman I knew from high school who's a Wiccan. And she and her group were gathering sky-clad under the moon for him. And I said, oye, there's this Wiccan woman. He said, what's that? I said, she's a witch. A witch? I said, yeah. And she and her group, 13 women, are going to meet for you and pray under the moon. And they're going sky-clad. And he said, oye, que sky-clad? And I said, well naked and he said naked witches are praying for me (laughs) i said said, yeah they are and he was like i like it i said yeah me too i think it's great you know and he he actually went into remission and this was so it's the pattern kind of of the book that he had moments where he came back from the brink i thought it was just sheer will um and then his body could not take the struggle anymore so all that happened and um you know i think i think it was really important to me to try to paint the portrait of a man who is run out of time and all he wants is to make sure he can repair anything that has gone wrong or any missteps he's made or any troubles his children and his wife and so forth have as his clock runs out. Well, if I only had time to ask you three more questions, one of them was <laughs> going to be about La Gloriosa, because what a glorious character she is. Oh, thank you. And how much I enjoyed her subplot and the scene where she and Little Angel get uh, lost in a housing development and drive around <laughs> these cul-de-sacs. And she thinks it's beautiful. He's angry. He's mad that he's lost. You know, he's. Yeah. It's not what he he's wants to be doing and at he's all. Also, like, what are we doing? You know, in the east side of 805, in the burnt out hills of Southern California, and there's fake 
docks and plaster <laughs> seagulls and you know it's called cove yeah they're he's, all these he's ocean just not names. enjoying no our beloved uh southwestern culture at no, all. no no but that beautiful moment where you become aware that the person you're spending time with is having a completely different experience and suddenly yeah. elevates you to their level She's a wonderful character. and, and Thank I, you. Uh, well, I guess I want to know, was she based on an actual person, a member of your family? Yes. My sister-in-law, Juan's wife, who's now 80-some years old, they were three sisters. And so none of the story about La Paz, nobody's from La Paz, none of that awful stuff happened. But the three sisters had come north, and they had a little restaurant, and Juan when he got together with Blanca, he worked in this little restaurant. And Gloria was just amazing. I mean, she was, you know, <laughs> late 50s, early 60s goddess. And I think that she knew it was her job to to be stunning. And it, it kept the family alive in a certain way because people would come to the restaurants and want to see her. And um, I had mentioned to you earlier about my dad's death. You know what? Uh, he died violently in Mexico. And But I was in the funeral home in Tijuana, and we were taking shifts on sitting with the body. They had taken me in there at about 2 in the morning and left me, and someone was going to spell me in an hour, and nobody ever came. So I was there from about 2 in the morning to about 9 in the morning or sitting with my father's body in a room. And that's when Gloria showed up. She came in at about three in the morning from dancing in the Mexican nightclubs. This ravishing Rita Moreno, you know? And my father had always just been crazy for her. And she stopped dead and she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll leave. I I didn't want to make any scandals. I just wanted to pay my respects. And I said no, 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 you can't leave, you know, that he loved you. And so we opened his coffin so she could talk to him. And I've never forgotten, that's where the entire character came from, just that, you know, 40 minutes of the two of us. I, I remember everything about it, her perfume, her incredible hair. You know, she was like, she was, she was the lioness of the family. She's kind of amused now that she's a big sex symbol. <laughs> You know, because she's in her 70s or whatever. Yeah. I oh, told that's, you, that's you, a great you're story. still incredibly hot. She's like, hi, Luis. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story and a great character. And so every time she danced across the page, it was it was like, oh, okay, here we go. This is fun. I'm so happy. <laughs> you know, I wanted to give just enough details so you could see her in your own mind, because I know that people see different things than I see in my mind. Yeah. And you're not trapped by trying to draw a picture of the person that actually exists and mix them in with people that never existed, you know, Yeah. because it's fiction. And, and the one way I got out of being in trouble with the family was saying, you know, fiction, it's a lie. It's a lie. I had to write this book, though. I had to make a movie in my mind. And who's more interesting than you? So everybody liked that. They're like, oh, yes, I see. That's true. <laughs> One of the funniest parts to me of the entire novel in a really sweet way to end it in a way that I think a person who didn't grow up with a Mexican family can really get the gist of was when they're having the party and there are no tacos. There are no right. family recipes. It's pizza and spaghetti and 
potato yeah. salad and KFC. And yeah, KFC for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess I just want to close this on that that note about not being bound by tradition and and how the Americanization is impacting the sort of dynamic of Mexican American families. I think whatever we think of as the Mexican American family is different than what we used to think of. Opportunities for education, for college educations and media saturation. So in my family, if if I took you right now back to the old neighborhoods and so forth, there are the classic old women, it's mostly old women now, who still don't speak English. And they live in a very close, you know, square mile neighborhood where they have Mexican stores. They stayed there. But the kids, you know, the kids are raised listening to Prince, man. So it's a heartbreak in a way to watch a generation drift far away from those roots. But it's really interesting now that I'm at this time in my life to watch their children and then those children's children, because we pop them out young, turning back. You know, I think it's a classic American journey, man. You know, my father, there's a reason why I mentioned Don Corleone at the party, because it was something my father told me when I was 14. He gave me The Godfather and said, you need to read this. And I was like, what is this? Just read it. He said, it's about us. And I said, we're not Italian gangsters. He said, no, it's about people from another culture coming to this country and trying to find their way to honor their histories. We're not doing what they do, but you'll recognize if you're smart what's happening with our family. I always remembered that, encountering Mario Puzo. That was important to me. And it's always good, like I told you earlier, to have a laugh. And if you can subvert expectations, you might be able to show a fresh path that you never considered if you're a reader. And that fresh path may actually be more real than the little movie you have playing in your head about what the Mexicans do. So, yeah, the young generation is like, you, you're not going to make me any freaking fish head soup with the eyeballs of the fish. I'm not eating that stuff, man. You know, they don't want menudo. They want KFC. They want Bud Light. <laughs> <laughs> but their children or grandchildren probably will. And I think that's the dream for me, that that moment will come when people can honor that background but succeed in this foreground, if you understand what I'm saying. That's what's amazing to me. Thanks to my guest, Luis Alberto Urea. The University of Arizona College of Humanities presents Angels and Devils, an evening with Luis Alberto Urea, on Thursday, October 14th. It begins at 7 p.m. at the Health Sciences Innovation Building on East Drachman. The lecture and the reading are free, but seating is limited and will follow COVID protocols. Online registration is required. You can also watch it via live stream. It's all a part of the 2021 Tucson Humanities Festival, sponsored by the Borchard Foundation Center on Literary Arts. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. 
Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.